pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes when you've been away from home for a long time, at college or pursuing your career in Denver or Dallas or raising your own family in Portland, sometimes all you want to do is just get home at Thanksgiving or Christmas or to that little place by the lake where you spent every childhood summer. Sometimes, though, coming home isn't all it's cracked up to be. I was thinking this week of Jim Harbaugh coming back to his old hometown of Ann Arbor and his alma mater of Michigan after almost 30 years away in places like Chicago and California. And no sooner does he get back home than he has to watch the national championship game and notice that his arch-rival's third-string quarterback is better than any quarterback Michigan has had since Tom Brady 15 years ago. This is Ohio State. This is the team he has to beat. This is the team, if he doesn't beat them, he'll get fired again. Third string. Sometimes coming home isn't all it's cracked up to be. Same with Jesus. It's been away from a lo- for a long time. I don't know how long, but Luke gives the impression that Jesus spent his young adulthood in Judea, in the environs of Jerusalem, about 100 miles south of Galilee. And then he yearns for home. And when he gets there, Mother Mary convinces him to preach a sermon at the local synagogue where he'd been raised and schooled, where he'd learned Hebrew and the 23rd Psalm and the books of the Bible in order like our own third graders. And the rabbi at the synagogue hands him a scroll and he rolls it out till he finds the place he's looking for. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, release to the captives, and liberty for the oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. And then, with astonishing chutzpah, Jesus wraps up the whole seditious sermon by saying, Today, right here, right now, in your hearing, this Scripture is being fulfilled. And then he sits down. Now maybe he did it on purpose, or maybe he had no idea how this sermon would impact the school teachers and neighbors who taught him since he was a little boy in short pants, but whatever his intention, he succeeds in making the congregation mad as hell. They're so mad they want to throw him off a cliff. One of the reasons they're so mad is the way he ends his sermon. Today, right here, right now in your hearing, this passage is being fulfilled, he says, after reading a beloved 600-year-old messianic promise from the prophet Isaiah. Right here, right now, in my person, this messianic promise is being fulfilled. That's a comment that is beyond brazen and well on its way to blasphemous. But another reason he made them mad is that he declared with no uncertain terms and transparent purpose whose side he intends to be on. I'm going to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and release to the captives and liberty for the oppressed. In other words, Jesus declares that he's going to be on the side of everyone who's not there in that synagogue on that Sabbath day. You know who is there, right? They're 
farmers and shopkeeps and bread bakers and vintners and carpenters and school teachers, whatever passed for rich tycoons in first century Nazareth, hardworking middle class folk. And Jesus says that he intends to be on the side of the unwanted, the people who are always on the edge of polite society, the people who hide in the shadows. So, I thought this would be a good story for us to hear on this holiday weekend when America is still being roiled by a persistent racial divide that continues exactly 150 years after the end of the Civil War. Some of us are horrified by what looks like a war on police personified in riots in Ferguson or the assassination of two policemen in New York City And others of us are equally horrified that unarmed black men keep getting killed in Ferguson, Cleveland, and Staten Island and by vigilantes in Florida. Wherever you stand on this issue, it's clear that we have a racial problem that won't go away. In 1992, a 23-year-old black man wrote, In the jewelry store, they lock up the cases when I walk in. In the shoe store, they serve the white man who came after me before me. In the mall, they follow me. This young black man had recently graduated from Stanford University where he'd been the senior class president and recently elected as a Rhodes Scholar and soon to matriculate at and then graduate from Yale University Law School. His name is Cory Booker, and today he is the junior United States Senator from New Jersey. In what might be the most practical book of the New Testament, St. James writes, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, willing to yield, and without a trace, without a trace of partiality. And what James means to say, I think, is that with our earthly wisdom, we can make our way under our own human intelligences. We get by well enough. But it's not enough. We need this unearthly wisdom that comes from above, that comes from God, without a trace of partiality. Partiality, of course, is endemic to the human nature. A long evolutionary process of survival of the fittest has built into human nature a suspicion of the other and the different, and so we're partial to what we know. We're partial to what's familiar. We're partial to those we love. We're partial to those who look like us and dress like us and sound like us. The wisdom that comes from God, on the other hand, is blind to the superficial differences that mark and bless this polychromatic, polyglot, double-gendered motley of the human family. Things like gender and race and skin color and ethnicity and strange tongues and different dress. Or, if the wisdom that comes from above is not quite colorblind, is not quite blind to these shallow surface differences like gender and skin color, it notices those things only when those distinctions are joys and blessings to us. 
without a trace of partiality, we might notice these superficial differences when we read a book that only a woman could write or hear a symphony that only a German could compose or listen to a song that only a black man could rap or wear a dress that only a French woman could design or appreciate a painting only a Dutchman could draw or witness an act of piety that only a Muslim can make or watch an opera that only an Italian could stage, or admire a family only a gay couple could raise, or hear a story only an autistic boy could tell. You know why the wisdom that comes from above is blind to these superficial earthly differences? It's because God was the one who first dreamed up this whole sprawling menagerie in all its speckled, dappled, brindled glory and threw it across the global stage in the first place with wild mirth, a triumphant fist pump, and a cosmic cry of, wow, that's really, really good. All of it. This coming March 7th is the 50th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery protest march, which led later in 1965 to the Voting Rights Act. One meaningful way to celebrate Martin Luther King Day this year, then, is to see Ava DuVernay's fine film, Selma. It'll remind you of how far we've come in 50 years and how far we still need to go. British actor David Oyelowo is gathering critical praise, if not famously an Oscar nomination, for his portrayal of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. But when you see the film, you'll remember that Dr. King is not the hero of this story, or at least he's only one of many. Till I saw the film, I'd forgotten that there were actually three protest marches from Selma to Montgomery in March of 1965 and that Dr. King wasn't even there for the one that happened on March 7, the first one, the most horrible one, the one Sheriff Jim Clark stopped on the Edmund Pettus Bridge with nightsticks, tear gas, and bullwhips, the one that made it onto most front pages of American newspapers and into our living rooms on the television set for the evening news, the one that changed America. For me, the most memorable character in the film is John Lewis of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. <laughs> when the actor playing John Lewis first appeared on the screen at the movie, my wife goes, whoa. I said, I'm sitting right here. She says, he's gorgeous. So, so maybe just seeing him is worth the price of admission. I don't know. John Lewis was a Baptist preacher. He was 25 years old. He had his skull cracked open on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but it hadn't been the first time. And he'd been beaten many times during freedom rides and sit-ins during the early 60s. John Lewis grew up in Pike County, Alabama. His parents were sharecroppers. They picked cotton and peanuts and corn. He was one of 10 children. The children left school to help their parents pick the crops during harvest time. Their small house had no electricity or running water. And when the teenage John Lewis first began to hear a call to the Christian ministry, he would go out to the hen house behind his home and preach the gospel to the Rhode Island Reds. He would baptize the chicks and he fed and raised them 
and he conducted their funerals, burying them under mounds of wildflowers. John Lewis has been the U.S. congressman from Georgia's 5th District since 1987. At the Washington Mall, after President Obama's first inauguration in 2009, a young African-American introduced himself to the Reverend Lewis as the police chief of Rock Hill, South Carolina. Imagine that, Mr. Lewis said. I was beaten near to death at the Rock Hill Greyhound bus station during the Freedom Rides of 1961. Now, the police chief is black. Glory, glory, hallelujah. After the swearing-in ceremony at the 2009 inauguration, Mr. Lewis approached President Obama with a commemorative photograph and asked him to sign it. The president wrote, Because of you, John. So Selma tells us we've come a long way in 50 years. Ferguson tells us we still have a long way to go. We need to strive toward that wisdom that comes from above without a trace of partiality. Martin Luther King was fond of saying, we may all have come here to America on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. Yes. Some of us came here from England on the Mayflower and others from West Africa on slave ships. Some of us came here on clipper ships from barren potato fields in Ireland and others on steamships from cramped and impoverished Europe. Some of us came here fleeing the Jewish pogroms of Russia and Poland. Some of us arrived here on ocean liners that docked first at Ellis Island where they changed our name from Novowitzki to Novak. Others deplaned from DC-10s at JFK from Beirut or Bombay or Baghdad. Some of us crossed the Gulf of Mexico from Cuba to Miami in 16-foot skiffs. Some of us came here on giant military transport planes from Vietnam. And some of us crossed the Rio Grande to Texas in inflatable rafts. And some of us flew here first class on a 747 from Beijing or Tokyo because we had a PhD in chemical engineering and were headed here for a six-figure job. We all came here on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. And the only way to achieve that harvest of righteousness that, John, that James talks about is to have that wisdom from above without a trace of partiality. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.